Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 342 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Happy Monday. It is just me. As of this recording, um, Adam is still in New York for Book Expo and Book Con, so it's um, only me today. This interview is also one I did solo. It is with Jennifer Weiner, the hugely best-selling author of books, um, including Good in Bed in her shoes. Her newest one, Mrs. Everything, is out next week. Um, I was given an opportunity to talk to her. I'm going to tell you, I, okay, this is somewhat of a humble brag, but we have been doing this podcast for almost three years, four years. It's been a long time. And (laughs) I think it's almost like three and a half, three and a half. Um, We have interviewed some really big names and I don't tend to fangirl very often, but I totally fangirled over this one when I got to interview her because I've been reading her books for a really long time and was very, very excited to have an opportunity to talk to her about Mrs. Everything because I was uh, able to get a copy at Midwinter and read it and loved it. And I'm so excited for you to both hear this interview and to also read the book. Um, This was an interview where... We talked about the book, but we also talked about a lot of um, things that sort of exist around the book and the the themes in the book. Um, We talk a little bit about the Me Too movement. We talk about diet culture. We talk about the concept of, quote unquote, women's literature and chiclet. Um, I just had so much fun chatting with her. So I'm really, really excited for you, for you all to, uh, to hear this interview. So if you would like to get a hold of us, you can um, email us directly, professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. You can go to our website. There you'll have um, access to all of our social links. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. So, you know, you can shoot us a message there. We're available wherever. So um, definitely send us a message. And I think that is everything. I don't think I'm forgetting anything. Have a good Monday. And um, enjoy this interview I did with Jennifer Weiner on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Jill. And with me, I have Jennifer Weiner, the number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 20 books, including In Her Shoes, Good in Bed, and Hungry Heart. Her latest book, Mrs. Everything, is out in June. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to Mrs. Everything? Yes. Um, <laughs> this is this is the first interview I've done about the book. Oh, wow. So let's, let's, I know, right? Okay, so let's see how I do. Mrs. Everything is the story of two very different sisters and 70 years of their lives and um it's their story but i hope it's also the story of women in america where we've been where we've gotten and how far we might still have to go that's good yeah thank you i think you did well words are my my tools Um, so Mrs. Everything is dedicated to your mother, and in the advanced copy, there's a author's note explaining the personal nature of this story. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit more about that? Yes. Okay. So my mom, Fran, um, a, a familiar figure to people who read my blog or follow right. me on social media, um, my mom grew up in Detroit, so 
I spent a lot of time going there as a kid, going back and um, seeing her parents and her her sister and my dad's parents, my dad's sister and all of my cousins. Um, so my mom has a history in Detroit, and mom, like Joe in the book, Joe gets married um, to a man, um, like my mom did, because that was pretty much your option back right. in the day. And moved to Connecticut and had four kids, and my parents got divorced in the 80s. And um, 10 years after they after they had finally split, my mom announced to the four of us that she had fallen in love with a woman. And you know, this this was the 90s. This was like a different a different time. And I I just remember like, you know. This wasn't too long after Matthew Shepard, and I'm thinking, like, oh, my God, like, are, are people going to throw bottles at my mom's head? Like, mm-hmm. what does this mean? And was she always attracted to women? And was her whole marriage a lie? And, you know, are the four of us, you know, <laughs> the four kids, like, how did this happen? Like, we had lots of questions for Fran. Um, and she, she wouldn't answer, you know, she only answered maybe half of them. <laughs> but I wanted to tell a story about about a woman who felt like she couldn't be authentically herself. Um, and then a sister, sort of a, a, a partner to this woman who manages to sort of embody what the feminine ideal of every decade was and also isn't being authentically herself. And so they... They both have to find their way to being who they're supposed to be, as I think my mother did, as I think many women do as they get older and sort of, you know, sort through, well, this is what society expects from me, this is what the world wants from me, but this is who I really am and this is what I really want. I have to ask, has Fran read the book yet? No. Do you think she's going to? (laughs) Oh, yeah, she reads everything, but... um, See, here's the thing. Like, I keep telling her, like, it's not really done. It's um, we're still still revising. And I, what I'm going to do is is like um, go through one of the advanced readers' copies and just like black out all the sex scenes, <laughs> and then I'll send it to her. But um, yeah. you know, it was it was very funny. Um, Curtis Dittenfeld is, is a friend of mine, and she was one of my early readers, and she and I were sort of talking about like the the um the the horribleness of having your parents read sex scenes that you've written and you know she sends her parents redacted copies and so I was like oh I'm totally doing that with Fran and she was um reading the book and she sent me some notes and she said but the sex scene is great you've done Fran proud (laughs) I was just like I'm dying here (laughs) I'm dead I will say there were some pretty good sex scenes, but yeah, that would be super awkward having my mom read that. Super awkward. <laughs> so, so like beyond any awkward you could even imagine. It's like, it's almost worse than having your parents walk in on you because, you know, that's reality and like whatever, you know, whatever like naked body parts and fumbling they see, you know, but like the idea that this is something you've imagined, it's like, giving them a glimpse into how you think about sex, which is almost worse than having them see how you do it. <laughs> I never, I yeah, no, I had never really considered that, but yeah. That's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> horrible. Just horrible. Redacted copy sounds good. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, one of my favorite parts about this book is that we see, I think it's five generations from Joe's grandmother all the way down. I mean, Joe's grandmother plays a, yeah. a small part, but she's in it all the mm-hmm. way down to um, Joe's granddaughter. And I think yeah. one of your skills as a writer is your ability to so accurately display the dynamics that come with relationships between women. And in this is- instance, you know, the particular nuances of women who are related to each other, because that adds a totally new level to those relationships. Right, right. Yes. Well, um, you know, having been many of the things in the story, you know, I've been a daughter, I, I, I am a mom, I am a wife, you know, I'm a sister, you know, and, and I, I think like, there's, there's almost like a secret language that you end up speaking with the women in your family where, you know, or it's like a shorthand, like, oh, like, remember that time at the beach? And everyone knows exactly which time at the beach you're talking about. And what I hope in the story is that I was able to tap into that that language and that familiarity and, and that bond, which is, is such a special bond because, you know, people have chosen families, people have friends, people have romantic partners, people, you know, the people you choose to be in your life as opposed to the people who are just there. But there's a way that you relate to the people that have, have, you know, literally like known you from the moment that you've been alive. And that was, that was some of of what I was trying to capture. And I think, you know, having that familiarity of uh, family and, and people who've known you that long is that Sometimes it means that emotions are heightened when um, they disagree about something, which, you know, comes up or there's... Because it's it's the echo of every other disagreement you've ever had about that particular subject. And it just, it it comes with the weight of history, I think. So, you know, there's there's just something like so like deep and, and so wrenching about that. Right. Absolutely. This is a piece of historical fiction, which again, covers multiple decades. Um, what was the research process like, you know, to capture the feeling and vibes of those various time periods? You know, the most interesting thing that I did was read newspapers and magazines from the 60s, you know, from the 50s, from the 60s, from the 70s, um, and not just reading the articles, because it would start out like, oh, I need to know what was ha- happening on campus at the University of Michigan right after Kennedy died. And so I'd go and, of course, you know, Lord love the internet because everything's <laughs> online and you can go find it. So I'd go look up the, you know, the Michigan Daily Standard and there would be the story that I needed. But um, just looking at, like, the ads too, like, you know, there's there's the whole, like, how much things cost, which is always a mind blower. Um, you know, but, but then it's just like you, you start really absorbing like the vernacular, the language of the time. Um, you start seeing the, the clothes that people are wearing and, and where they were buying them. Um, you know, and, and, and just, um, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, I, I think the same way that historians are going to go back and look at Twitter these days to find out like, what was happening in politics and what was happening in pop culture and how did people talk to each other? Like that was what it was like reading like the classified ads of a student newspaper back then. So, um, you know, and, and luckily I had some, some living resources so I could, I could talk to my mom and, and we actually made a trip to Detroit together where, 
you know, she drove me around and she's like, there's the, the synagogue where I got married and there's the, the library I used to ride my bike to. So I was able to actually go back and see some of the places that I was writing about. But I also um, did a lot of reading and, and local and national. I mean, like women's magazines from back in the day are a trip. And I, I highly recommend them. Like if you're <laughs> interested in, in finding out how people thought in the, in the 60s. And I, I have to say, like, I really expected that it was going to be a whole lot of, you know, how to stay slim for your man kind of stuff. And it wasn't. And I was delightfully surprised at how um, progressive and forward-thinking magazines like Seventeen and Mademoiselle were back then. Like, you know, they, they all had advice columns. Like, that was a thing. And it would be like, you know, dear Deb, I worry that I, you know, I, I packed on the pounds over the summer. Like, you know, the way they talk and, and pack, packing on the pounds was a big thing. But the advice that, that the magazine would give would be like, you know, first go to your doctor and make sure that you actually, you know, do need to lose some weight. And then if you do, you know, here is like the world's most sensible diet. And it was like, do not ever go below 1600 calories a day. You know, that's not healthy for young women. And, you know, make sure you're being reasonable. Like it was all really, and you know, they, they would write stories about like, you know, girls having experiences exchange students or girls who were, you know, going to New York to audition for things. Like it, it just, it, it felt like, um, especially for characters growing up in the Midwest, I think, like it was this kind of window into a larger world and a world that had a lot of possibilities for women. I had never really considered how advertising in those magazines would be a really good time capsule of what the the world looked like at that time. Yeah, and and the way that the ads were written, like there was there was like a language to them, um, because it really wasn't as much about the picture, um, you know, because a lot of the times the picture would just be in black and white. You weren't really seeing anything, and 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 so the language would be like you know a deliciously frothy conception <laughs> of tool, and it would be like oh I want that. And I'd be like, yeah, I wouldn't even know what they were talking about half the time. It's like, I want that. Um, you know, and it was, um, you know, and of course there were weight loss products, which were also, they had their own language, which um, I got to sort of delve into um, because one of the characters does have like a little, a little fling with disordered eating. And um, what I learned is that sort of the, the great grandfather of SlimFast was this stuff called Metrical, which came on the market in the 60s. And um, it was like this, this hot pink. It sort of looked like Pepto-Bismol if you got the, if you got the strawberry flavor. Um, but it was sort of, um, and, and they advertised it to businessmen. Hmm. They, they were saying, like, drink your lunch. And, and they'd have a picture of, like, you know, these, like, fat cat businessmen at, like, their three martini lunches, and only one of them would have a can of Metrical. And I'm like, that is really not how we sell weight loss these days. It was very interesting. But, um, you know, it was – so the language of ads, the stuff that they were selling, the way that they were selling it was all sort of a window into – into expectations like okay this is this is how i'm supposed to look this is what i'm supposed to want this is how i'm supposed to imagine my life which in, at the end of the day is what advertising it 
does. I think it, it's sort of like this is how your life's supposed to be. So that was um, it was really really interesting, you know. And then as I moved into the seventies and the eighties, like you know, you there were television clips of like. You know, if if I wanted my characters watching The Incredible Hulk or whatever, like I could find that online. So, boy, I I just like I raise a glass to anybody who wrote historical fiction before the internet existed, because <laughs> boy, oh boy, oh boy, <laughs> could not have been easy. Well, I think the thing with advertising, of course, having you know watched Mad Men, is that that time period of advertising there weren't a lot of women, and so everything was being produced mostly by men and from you know, the perspective of the male gaze and all of that. And you have an opinion column with the New York Times, which covers a lot of topics related to gender and culture. And a lot of the plot lines of Mrs. Everything also delve into the same themes and ties closely with the Me Too movement. So it's sort of, yeah. you know, like this is all, it's still happening. <laughs> well, that, that was the thing. And I didn't, you know, like, one of the quotes that I always come back to is like years and years ago, someone was interviewing the novelist Grace Paley and they said, do you think your novels are political? And she said, I write about women. So yes. Mm. And I, I think about that like all the time. And of course, you know, the way the personal is political and the way that um, the choices that women are making for themselves always has, some kind of impact on the larger culture. And I thought about that a lot. And I didn't want to write like a message book where you like feel like whomped over the head with the author's beliefs and perspectives. But I wanted to illustrate, um, you know, and I knew that just by telling a story of women going from the 50s through the present, that it would that it would naturally touch on on feminism and you know the way that things have changed and the way that things have improved and that it would end in this this very fraught moment where we find ourselves where it's like oh wait a minute it it didn't get better it mm-hmm. didn't you know maybe change as much as, as it should have and women are complicit sometimes um and i don't want to give too much away about the the characters or the ending but i will say that there is um one one of joe's excuse me one of joe's daughters in the present generation sort of has this this me too moment where she's not the one being targeted she's not the one being victimized she is however the one who has to decide um am i going to go to bat for the powerful male mentor who has guided me and encouraged me through my whole career or am I going to sort of believe the whispers that I'm hearing about what this guy is like with other women because it seems like every single one of these guys that gets taken down um whether it's Charlie Rose whether it's Les Mendes there's some like very prominent very powerful woman who will say well he was never like that with me he never did any of that to me. I never got a glimpse of that guy. And, you know, of course, the response is, well, just because it didn't happen to you doesn't mean it didn't happen. But I, I'm interested in those women. I'm interested in the question of, like, where are your responsibilities and where are your loyalties? And how much do you owe the next generation, really? Yeah, that um, part at the end was 
very insightful, I think. And I think it goes back to you're not wanting this to kind of be a message book because you sort of present these storylines and these characters and readers are really allowed to take away what they want from it. But I think you do it in a way where you're sort of like, no, this is what you probably should take away from it, but not in a way that <laughs> feels like you're whomping them over the head. <laughs> well, well the, the thing is, like, you know, it's like, if you're just writing a tweet, like everything is very clear. And if you're just writing a political speech, it's like my side right, your side wrong. But real life isn't like that. Right. And so I, I wanted to write a story where like there's, a woman who's being victimized, except, you know, is she really a victim? And, you know, she is far from, like, the quote-unquote perfect victim. And, you know, we know that she's a little bit of a scam artist in her own life. And so it, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think these things are always complicated. I, I think that, um, you know... I remember when the Harvey Weinstein stories started coming out and, you know, over and over and over again, you know, the actresses would go to hotel rooms or, you know, with Charlie Rose, like, you know, come to my house in the Hamptons or meet me at my apartment. And, you know, the guy would step out of the shower naked, like, you know, or with a robe that was open. And it happened so frequently that I'm just like, damn, are these guys, like, all just buying the robe at the same place? <laughs> like, is it some kind of, like, magical, like, you know, the robe just swings open at the right moment? Like, I don't I don't get it. But, you know, there were definitely people who were just like, you know, let's burn these guys at the stake yesterday. And then there were people saying, well, okay, but if everybody knew about or Charlie or Matt or Les. Like, if it was an open secret, why were women still willing to put themselves in danger? Like, why were they going to this guy's hotel room or his apartment or his summer house or his whatever? You know, and it, it's like, well, are we going to blame the victim here? I don't think we should. But, you know, I do think it's it's an interesting question. Like, how far are you willing to go in the service of your own ambition? How much are you willing to do for, you know, this theoretical, you know, the, the, the next woman who's going to come for that audition, this woman that you don't even met, this, have, this woman you haven't even met, this woman who's maybe going to be your competition. Like, real life is complicated, and I am in no way excusing the behavior of these men, I am no way suggesting that women are asking for it with their actions or their attire. But what I'm saying is like when you start talking about real people the way you can in a novel where everyone's got their story and everyone's got their side to things, it, it's rarely as clear as you'd like it to be. Right. And I think the, the book and the story, and because you cover all of these um, topics, I think it's a book that a lot of men should read and sort of understand what the women in their yeah. life are are dealing with. Well, um, read this book, men. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I mean, no, go ahead. Funny. Men should read this book, you know. Will they? And I've, I've, um, you know, you you don't want covers that are going to alienate your female readers like you don't want them feeling like unwanted or like oh, what is this this is like a big change like this book doesn't look like her other books but you know i i do 
want men to read my books. You know, the same way that I think that a lot of men read Jodi Picoult's books mm-hmm. because they know that she's got something important to say about important issues. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so tricky. Like when you, when you, um, I mean, because I can write any book I want, but at the end of the day, there's a design component to it. Like, how is this book going to look and how is it going to be marketed and where in a store is it going to live? And I think that ebooks have helped things a lot. Like, I think, you know, because no one knows what's on your e-reader. So I think that, you know, maybe, maybe men are going to sort of find my books that way. But my hope is that um, this book, doesn't like the cover while it has women on it like that it doesn't scream girly mm-hmm. is, is my hope but then i'm like well even if it did men should still read it those those wimps <laughs> have to like why do we have to make everything look the way they're comfortable with like because women read stuff that men write and and nobody's got to like make us you know make make bend over backwards to make it look okay for us I'm I'm glad you mentioned Jody and sort of on that subject because I know both of you have spoken out about the concept of quote unquote women's fiction. <laughs> yeah. Which this sort yep. of mm-hmm. like why can't it all just be fiction? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's just I, I talk about like history and progress and lack of progress because I do feel like we have we have like come a certain way like when I was just starting out everyone called my book chiclet that was sort of the demeaning box that my books got put into and and now the demeaning box that my books get put into is women's fiction which is like yay I think like that's better maybe it's it's slightly less stupid sounding than chiclet but I still think you know I go back to that whole controversy a few years ago where um there was this whole like scandal with Wikipedia, where somebody was taking women's novels out of just the general fiction category and putting them onto a page for women's fiction. And there was no corresponding page for men's fiction. That just got to be fiction. Right. And, you know, I still think that there is a lot of um, prejudice out there about the great American novel, if it exists. You know, who gets to write it and who is writing something that is deep and true and essential and has something important to say about people and politics and the way we live now and who's just writing entertainment. And I think that all fiction should be entertaining. I mean, I think at the end of the day, if you've written a book that that isn't enjoyable, you know, that that doesn't have characters that people want to spend time with, whether they're, you know, wonderful people or fascinatingly awful people. Like, if you haven't written somebody with enough appeal to get readers to want to spend time with that person, you haven't done your job. But it's it's been kind of amazing to me, you know, sort of as a a veteran soldier of the great chiclet wars of the aughts, you know, (laughs) to see, like, I think um, the thing that, like, makes me stabby these days is, like, Carl Ovek's Nausgaard. I, I don't know if I'm saying that right. But, like, you know, here's a guy writing about the minutia of raising children and how boring it is and, you know, just the, the, the mundaneness of it. And 
everyone sort of hails him as like, oh my God, this is profound, this is transcendent. And I'm like, dude, if a woman was writing this, it would be serialized in ladies' home journal, mm -hmm. and nobody would be giving it prizes. Like, it just, it's, you know, or the, the question of, um, of pseudonyms, like with A.J. Flynn and that, yep. <laughs> that giant story. Yep. But I'm sure some of us will still be talking about it in <laughs> when my book comes out. You know, where here's a guy who um, is going to write a thriller, is going to, um, you know, sort of very cynically sets out, you know, very cynically or very smartly sets out to do sort of a girl on the train, gone girl, girl in the window kind of thing, um, you know, and writes this book and, and does it very much, you know, watches his Hitchcock and reads his Gillian Flynn and has this unreliable narrator and then goes to pick a pseudonym and goes for initials, um, you know, and, and for a long time it was, it was women writing, you know, under sort of J.K. Rowling, yeah. you know, so nobody would know that you were a girl. And, and now it's like we've got men doing it, you know, so that maybe nobody knows that you're a guy and you're going to get women readers that way. Um, I don't know. It's, it's just, I, 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 hope that if, if either of my daughters end up writing for a living that we're going to be able to read books with fully open minds and not with the assumption that like if a guy writes something you know we're going to automatically assume like we're starting at 100 and taking points off and if a woman writes something we're starting at 75 because we're just, we're still not used to thinking of women as the, you know, great American writers. That math example is really clever. I mean, that makes so much sense of how things are looked at. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I, I can see it all the time where, you know, you'll read a review of a book by a man and it'll just be, you know, brilliant, transcendent, you know, is going to change the way you see the world. And, and then I'll read it and I'll be like, you know, huh. and, and then I'll read something by a woman that like maybe didn't get reviewed at all. And I, I'll be like, you know, this is transcendent. This is brilliant. This has changed the way I see the world. And it's like, why didn't any critics say that? Mm -hmm. And and I, I think about the Vita account, which were you know, which Vita is an organization of women in the arts, and every year they count, you know, they look at, like, really big-name publications and newspapers and magazines and literary quarterlies, and they count how many women write reviews and how many women's work gets reviewed. And it's, you know, back in the day when Jody and I started talking about this, you know, the response that we got was like, you're jealous, you're crazy, you know, everything. It's, it's, it's not that, it's not that publications aren't reviewing women's work, it's that they're not reviewing your work and your work sucks and that's why. And then people started counting and, you know, it, it, in fact, it was a gigantic disparity. Um, you know, the New York Times is maybe like 60, 40 or, you know, they, they were at least sort of kind of in the ballpark, but then you get to places like the New Republic that, like, one year they reviewed, I think, like, 31 books by men and, like, four by mm -hmm. men. And it's like, what is even going on here? 
you know, and then you you read, and once once you've sort of opened your eyes to it, it's like you can't ever close them. And then you'll, you know, I, I remember like last year, I think the New Republic wrote this big story about, you know, it was some kind of like trend in literature, and they they quoted or mentioned like twenty books by men and two women in the whole piece, and one of the women was Oprah. And I'm like, don't you see there's a problem here? And I, I think that people still don't, a lot of them. And I think that there are, you know, women still have to point it out when we see it, and we still have to get noisy about it, and we still have to say, you know, check your prejudices and check your double standards and let, you know, pay attention to who you're quoting, pay attention to who you're reviewing. Like when you're quoting experts in your feature story or in your op-ed, are you calling women? Are there women sources in your Rolodex? Like, uh, you know, and, and I just, it, it's not always fun to be the person who's, like, pointing that out. But, you know, I, I think that if things are going to get better, people have to speak up. And, I, you know, that's what I've tried to do. And that's, I, I just, I hope that things are getting better. I hope that we're leaving it all, leaving leaving the world in a better place for, like, the next generation of women writers and, and thinkers and activists and politicians and, and all of it. Agreed. And I think Mrs. Everything does a good job about starting those conversations. Yeah, thank you. That, that was really my hope. And, and to sort of do it in, you know, hopefully, like, I want people to be taking this book to the beach and I want them to be, you know, taking it on airplanes and taking it on trains and taking it on vacation. That's all good. But, you know, if it gets like mothers talking to daughters or daughters talking to grandmothers about like, what was your life like and what were your choices and what do you wish was different and what are you glad has changed? You know, I, I think that these are conversations that we, we need to be having. Um, and I, I think if we're going to keep, like, moving the ball forward, we need to, to talk about, you know, like, like even watching the State of the Union last night um, and what it was like seeing all of those female congresswomen. And, mm-hmm. like, that was not something I saw growing up. And I made sure my daughters saw it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, mom, whatever, okay. But, you know, I'm like, hey, this this is important. Like, representation matters, you guys. (laughs) How can't see it (laughs) My daughters are so over me. It's kind of hilarious. There it is. There it is. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So I have to say, I've been reading your books for a while. And when I... um, I first read uh, Good in Bed. It was life-changing because it was the first time I read a book where a character looked like me. And you mentioned earlier in the interview that um, with Mrs. Everything, there's a character that goes through disordered eating and and has her own ups and downs with her weight. As an author, um, why is it like, can you talk about why it's so important for you to represent different body types in all of your books? Well, with Good in Bed, I really did have like a mission. Like, I, Toni Morrison had been one of my professors in college, and the thing that she is famous for saying is, if the book that you need to read isn't on the shelf, it's your job to read it. And the book that I needed to read when I was a young woman, 
when I was a teenager and when I was like 12 years old and, and reading books I probably should not have been reading was um, a woman who looked like me, who looked like my mom, and looked like so many of the women around me who, you know, who was plus size and who found her happy ending without changing her body. And I knew that that was going to be the story that I, that was the, the journey that, that, that Candy Shapiro in Good in Bed was on. Um, and I, I think, you know, as long as, as long as women are still struggling, as long as women are still feeling like the most important thing they have to change is not the world, but their dress size. I'm going to keep writing about it and, and hopefully, you know, and again, like not in a wampy over the headway, but in a way that shows like how much of this has to do with, with culture and, you know, how little of it has to do like, you know, just, just the whole idea of like, we like women small. We like women quiet. We like women not to take up too much space and not to impose themselves. And we have a whole lot of words that we use for women who do, you know, that we never use for men. Like, I'm working on an essay right now. Um, this this author named Lizzie Skernick is editing a collection of essays about, like, words that men call women, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, ambitious angry, you know, fat, strident, shrill, loud, emotional, hysterical. And like, you're reading down this list and it's like, oh my God, you know, no one says that about men, right? Like, you know, Donald Trump can say the the wackest nonsense and nobody's like, oh my God, he's hysterical. Like that just isn't a word that we use for men, even if he fits it perfectly, you know? And it's like, um... You know, so I've been thinking a lot about um, because the word the word that I got was loud, right? Mm-hmm. So I start looking at like examples of how that word gets used, and of course, like Hillary Clinton, you know, people hated her voice or said that they did, and you know, then I'm reading sort of audiologists and speech experts saying actually she has a, a really normal voice, and she's usually like right in the range of like normal volume. Trump's the one who gets really high and loud at the end of his sentences, which is something that we typically associate with emotion. So I'm thinking, why is she the one getting, like, nailed with, like, loud? And, and I'm just thinking to myself, like, it has to do with with space. Like, if you're loud, you're sort of shoving yourself down somebody's ears. And if you're large, you're pushing yourself out of the box that they want you in. Like, you know, you're making it so they can't ignore you in a lot of ways. And, you know, it just like going back to the 60s and thinking about so much of that advertising and and so much of the expectations and the idea that like, yeah, you could go to college, but, you know, you could be a nurse or a teacher in many cases. Like those were the two things that, that women were sort of told that they could go for. And, you know, hopefully you're going to graduate with that MRS degree, too. And the idea of women sort of fitting themselves into socially acceptable spaces, like fitting themselves into marriage, even if they're not, strictly speaking, 100% heterosexual, or fitting themselves into a smaller size because the world wants to see women 
expending their energy that way than, you know, screaming at the New York Times for not reviewing enough women, you know? It's like, like I mean, there's a there's another quote that I that I think about all of the time about like a woman on a diet is you know she's tired she's hungry she's exhausted she's quiet mm. and that's really how the world wants women to be in many ways that's a Naomi Wolf quote and I I'm paraphrasing it but it's basically like if you're dieting like that's where your energy is you're you're counting those calories you're counting those steps you're you know thinking about like what did you eat for breakfast what are you going to eat for lunch and if that's where your energy is and that's where your focus is you're probably not also out there changing the world and i wanted to write a book that showed that yes the world still needs some changing and that there's a certain level of folly with just thinking that your body is the part of you that matters. Thank you for that answer. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Well, like I said, I've, I've been working on this essay, so I've just been like thinking about it a lot and just <laughs> noticing a lot of like, you know, um, when Stacey Abrams, who delivered the Democrats' response to the State of the Union, was announced, like, Axios ran this picture of her where she's like, her mouth is open and she's pointing her finger and she's yelling. And, or she looks like she's yelling. I have no idea what she's doing. She could have just been like, you know, telling somebody to like close the car door or something. Right. But, and, and then Rebecca Traster, who wrote a book about women in anger, said, you know, it's always that picture. It's always that, you know, pointing a finger with the mouth open. And then, sure enough, it's like I'm looking at like literally like, you know, two screens down in my Twitter feed, there's Alexia Ocampo-Cortez, you know, same exact mouth open, hand extended. And I'm like, wow. Like, and then, you know, you start seeing it everywhere. And it's like, there's that loud thing. And there's that soft thing. And there's that angry, emotional, hysterical, strident, shrill thing. And, and it just shows up over and over and over again. And, you know, I am hoping, I'm hoping that the stories that I tell are going to change the world a little and are going to at least, like, move the ball forward. Um, yes. Also, I just, the fact that you studied under Toni Morrison, I'm just kind of blown away by it. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you should have seen me. Like, I don't think I said anything for, like, the first three months. I'm just sitting there going, holy shit, that's Toni Morrison. She's right there. <laughs> Yeah, she. I was, I was so chill. I was so chill. <laughs> she actually, uh, she was born up here in the Cleveland area, so we have a little hometown. Yeah, I know. Well, uh-huh. hometown pride for Tony. Um, so I feel like I could talk to you for like the next four hours, but I don't think that would be a good podcast episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was wonderful. Thank so, you so much. This was great. Great. So at the end of all of our episodes and our interviews, we have this thing we call the Nerd Nine, which is kind of a lightning round of questions. So I'm ready. Okay. So what was the last book you finished reading? Um. Oh my God. I can't. I. I'm gonna have to like go get my Kindle. Um. <laughs> What was the, oh gosh, you know what, it was, um, it was, it was the George Martin, the Age of Ice and Fire, the new, the, the new sort of compendium about, um, Westbrook. 
you're, I'm a giant, giant Game of Thrones fan. <laughs> that makes me so happy. Um, your favorite place to read? In bed. What book made you fall in love with reading? Oh, wow. Probably Little Women. One place you'd like to travel to that you haven't been to yet? Hmm. Um, Barcelona. Favorite holiday? Holiday. Uh, really good one. Oh, you know what? I always hope to break the fast, and I like it because I everybody thinks that I'm the best cook in the world when really they're just starving. <laughs> so that's a good one. That's that's a good answer. Uh, coffee or yeah. tea? <laughs> um, it depends. I like iced coffee in the morning. Cats or dogs? Odds, hundred percent. Favorite food? Favorite food, probably prime rib. And if you could have dinner with one person dead or alive, who would it be? Probably Tommy Morrison because now I can talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be able to ask her stuff. <laughs> Finally, what would you like readers to take away from Mrs. Everything? I'd like them to be entertained and I'd like them to be thinking about where we've come and where we're going wonderful thank you so much for coming on the podcast jennifer this was a pleasure thank you for having me readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in marketplace professional book nerds is proud to be an evergreen podcast signature program to learn about other evergreen podcasts visit evergreenpodcasts.com our podcast is produced recorded and edited by adam sokol and jill grunewald and presented by rakuten overdrive for more information visit professionalbooknerds.com My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the authors' lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.